Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Near the end of section three of the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, Kant is going to talk about what he's calling a dialectic of reason. And it's worth exploring just what the dialectic is. But before that, let's talk about the meaning of this term for Kant, because I think that some people may associate this with some of the philosophers coming after Kant on the one hand, and other people may associate it with some of the philosophers coming long before Kant on the other hand. And he doesn't mean what either of those groups mean. So on the you might say front end, we have people like Hegel and Marx who are coming after Kant. Hegel is himself working in the wake of Kant. He's part of the German idealist movement that Kant in many respects kicks off. And Marx is himself building off of Hegel and as he says, turning Hegel on his head. Now for them, what dialectic means is this process by which ideas are emerging out of each other. It's not necessarily the thesis, antithesis, synthesis that a lot of people make it out to be in, in Hegel, but that does happen for Marx. Kant doesn't mean that. He means something different. On the other hand, on the back end, we can talk about Plato and Aristotle and other ancient philosophers for whom dialectic was this process of back and forth discussion carried out by rational beings, which was supposed to ultimately culminate in some sort of scientific philosophical conclusions. And it began from starting points that might be agreed to by most people. They're not entirely secure, but eventually it was supposed to yield our first principles by which we would understand ourselves, the universe, all sorts of other things as well. So that's very different than the, the second. Now what Kant means is something quite different. He means sort of an interplay of reason, the rational faculty that we have, but it's actually something that can be carried out by a person, him or herself, which Aristotle said could be done as well. And it doesn't seem to yield a result. So as opposed to some sort of art or inquiry, which is supposed to produce results or some sort of process, which is supposed to produce results. Instead for Kant, a dialectic is actually sort of a quag right? A place where it's difficult to, to get through, it leads to aporias and not being able to, to proceed. So why is there a dialectic of reason happening here? In the groundwork, one of the things that Kant has been talking about is human freedom. And that is for him specifically freedom of the will. And if you look a little bit earlier in the text, he is talking about the will as being something that's ultimately grounded in an intelligible world, which science can't get at, experience can't get at. It's not a world of sense. And that is actually the grounding for the world of sense, this world of the understanding or intelligible world. And the will is free of the sort of causal determination that happens in the world of sense. What in this portion of the text he's calling nature. And Kant is going to contrast here two different ways in which the human being can be regarded with respect to actions. That's what we're particularly interested in. 
are our actions free or are they causally determined? And the answer is actually, quite frankly, well, it's both because the causal determination is not simply the causal determination of what's on this side, the side of necessity, natural necessity, but on the side of the will as causally determining our actions. The will is its own particular kind of cause that is not caught up within the matrix of this sort of cause. So all of that said, let's talk about what the two sides are. On the one side, we have, as he says, the freedom of the will. And this is, as he says, an idea of reason. It is something that we can think. And in fact, not only can we think it, inevitably, we do in fact think it. There are some people who deny it. Of course, in order to deny it, they're already going against what most people uh, say, and they are sort of implicitly <laughs> assuming it, as Kant will point out. But it is something that we naturally, you might say, in exercising our faculty of reason, will arrive at that. It doesn't mean that we fully understand it but it's something that we can come up with. And he says, this is not an empirical conception. This is not something that is coming to us from our direct experience of the world or of our own interiority as conscious beings. So there's something more going on here on this side in the intelligible world. On the other side, we have what Kant calls the necessity of nature. Nature operating according to laws. Now, those laws themselves are concepts of the understanding, right? And this whole thing of the necessity of nature, that itself is a concept of the understanding. And the understanding is not just the same thing as the senses. It is assembling them. It is integrating them into one consciousness. But this does, as he says, prove it its reality in experience, the notion that the natural world, including our consciousness insofar as it's part of the natural world, insofar as we are acting within a world that includes all these other things that's coherent, we do in fact experience that say, for example, our motives, that is our desires and inclinations do in fact move us to do things. They do in fact provide us with the grounds for our actions, not actions that can thereby be say universalized according to the categorical imperative, but actions that we do follow according to what kind calls hypothetical imperatives. And we can see other people doing the same thing. And we can see objects working in the same ways and, and things in between us and mere objects, like say animals behaving in that way. So we have two different points of view. And we can say, well, you know, one way to resolve this is when we're looking at ourselves as free beings, we're looking at this side. And we're, when we're looking at ourselves as beings whose actions are effects or phenomena coming from other things, then we look at it this way. So we have a bifurcated point of view. And Kant thinks that that's fundamentally right. But there is a problem with that. We're one being. And he says that these two different perspectives have to be united in the same thinking substance. So not only do we have, you know, the understanding working on making sense of what it is that we're experiencing through the senses and interiorly through what we call the inner sense and our consciousness and trying to integrate and synthesize all of this into one coherent point of view, we also have this entire other side, which reason is providing us, and we want to integrate that as well. So this is, this is representing a great, you might say, metaphysical hope or desire on the part of Kant that he is recognizing. Now, the problem is, is that these 
two seem to be in contradiction with each other, don't they? If we look at it this way, then it seems like this has to be wrong. And if we look at it this way, then it seems that this has to be wrong. Why would that be the case? He doesn't fully spell this out, but if we think about what the consequences are, if we do assume that everything that is part of nature is operating according to some sort of causal necessity, some sort of universal web of determinism, then it seems like this can't possibly be the case, right? On the other hand, we also think, and Kant would say even to some degree, no, you know, by following out what reason tells us, at least in terms of the conceptions of autonomy, morality, those sorts of things, that this is something we do have to take stock in. So if this is true, if this really is the case, then doesn't that undo the causal determinism? Every time I make a free action, doesn't that totally bollocks things up? And Kant says, Here's where we have to look at it again in two different ways. If we were thinking about it merely in terms of what he calls speculative philosophy, which is concerned with pure reason. So this would be, you know, the first critique, the critique of pure reason, also his, his work, the prolegomena to any future metaphysics. Then this is not something that turns out to be resolvable. Yet it is from the perspective of practical philosophy and practical reason. In fact, he goes further and he says, it has to be resolvable because if it's not, then something else is going to creep in, namely what he calls fatalism. Fatalism is what we nowadays often call determinism, which is this notion that there really is no human freedom in any respect whatsoever, that all things are totally entirely determined by the same sort of fabric of necessity, which operates according to laws, which of course we can understand with little consolation there, but we would have no freedom whatsoever. So the resolution to this, Kant says, cannot come from the side of speculative philosophy. It must come from the side of practical philosophy. That is how this dialectic can be addressed. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.